Hey, listen, um, before you sit down, I just want to say a couple things about kind of what I think we feel as, as a result of what happened last year. Um, you know, as a church, we made some steps. We took some, some steps as a church to go against what the, the state was saying. Um, we opened a lot earlier. We caught some flack about that. And, and I started to dig into what I felt like was the prophetic for America. And what I found is there are voices. As I, I've read the Bible, you know, a bunch of times. And, and I, what I found is a lot of times get, people get frustrated with the voice of the prophetic. Um, they, get, they get nervous around it. I mean, they got real nervous around John the Baptist, if you're a Bible person. And um, uh, they got nervous around El- uh, Elijah and, and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And um, when I started to hear Charlie, uh, I could hear in his voice that, first of all, he's a Christian. He'd love God. I'm not a bandwagon person. So, like, when I, when I see people, I step back and I watch the fruit of their life. Because I want to see what's going to happen as time goes on. Now, I just got to know Charlie over the last probably year through some other friends Um, And I've watched him not just on the social media framework, but I've watched him in the back room talking to pastors. And what I see is I see a prophetic voice in America. Um, You know, I don't know what he thinks. He may think that that it's more factual and political. He's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. And but what I've noticed is that that from a church perspective, is that I believe, Charlie, that you, you are doing something spiritually that you may not even realize that you're doing. And I feel like Freedom House and Penny and Troy want to, we've gotten behind you and believe in you to the point where I know that you're doing something for the church spiritually because there's so much foundation in you spiritually. And I know that God's going to do something through this man. And I know that, that God is doing something in our nation. I, I'm a firm believer that hard times make strong people. Hard times make strong people. I'm not afraid. God's bigger. I read something today. Just because Goliath looked bigger doesn't mean that God isn't bigger. And so no matter what we see, what we hear, what we feel, God is in control. And we're here for such a time as this. And so I want you to put your hands together for our our guest tonight that's going to share, talk, do whatever, do his thing. And I want you to put your hands together, give a a great Freedom House Charlotte welcome to Charlie Kirk. Come on. fight for freedom on campuses across the country. That's why we are here. Thank you. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Thank you, guys. And thank you to the Maxwells and this wonderful church for having us here. Uh, This is going to be a lot of fun. And it's an important day. And... Before we get started, I just want to say this is a day that every single American should celebrate, 
publicly and understand the significance of what Independence Day is all about. And every church should lead the charge on that, and we are going to talk about why that's the case. But first, I just want to say, how great is this church that we could be in person and worship the Lord, and you're doing a wonderful job, Troy. You really are. Madison, about a year ago, Madison won a surprise primary, and many of you know this, some of you do not. Uh, Madison is the youngest person ever elected to U.S. Congress at age of 25, so don't let anyone ever tell you that you're too young to get involved and make a difference, and Madison's doing a wonderful job in D.C. We were joking around beforehand, I do not want to go to D.C., so I sent Madison for me. And so, Madison, you're doing a wonderful job. We need more people in D.C. like you. So, this is a really important weekend. And I think I'm going to try my best to dodge around the cliches. Some of it I have to do because some of the cliches are true. But this day is so much more than kind of the one-liners you hear on television. We need to talk about what was happening in the entirety of the year 1776. What was the context of what was happening? Why did these people come together and all of a sudden decide to sign a document? What did that document even say? That when in the course of human events it becomes necessary to dissolve ties with one... Whoa, hold on. What does that even mean? And does it even apply to us today? And most importantly, as we're here in the house of the Lord, do Christians or should Christians honor July 4th, 1776? So let's start with this question. We say this is America's founding. But let's think about that. How do we celebrate a founding when we had no president at the time? We had a Continental Congress, and that was it. We didn't have a Supreme Court. We didn't have a Constitution, yet we say, that's our birthday. That's weird, isn't it? That we say our birthday is not when the Constitution was ratified, September 17, 1787, not when the Bill of Rights was ratified or approved in December of 1791. We say, no, 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 our birthday is when 56 spirit-filled people were in Philadelphia and decided to sign a document that was unlike any other. So what does that document actually say? So the declaration starts unbelievably wide because it starts eternal. Then it gets unbelievably narrow and then it gets wide. So it starts with six words that apply throughout all time. When in the course of human events. What does that mean? It means that what we're about to say here It's going to apply in 2021. It's going to apply in 2081. It'll apply in 1990. It's basically saying time is no bearing on these truths we're about to articulate. Then they say it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve ties with another. What they're really getting at here is we need to separate. And eventually it goes on to say that we appeal to the laws of nature and of nature's God. Those are really heavy words. Now understand the context of this leading up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. 1776 was a very consequential year. Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense in 1776 where he famously gave the speech. He said, give me liberty or give me death. And he wrote in Common Sense that it was time for the people of faith to rise up and do something. In 1776, Adam Smith wrote The Inquiry into the Wealth of Nations, the doctrine that we attribute most famously to the 
the discovery of freedom of markets and capitalism. George Mason, a month before the ratification of the Declaration or the approval of the Declaration, got the approval of the Virginia Bill of Rights. It was called the Virginia Declaration of Rights. In 1776, there was a lot of energy and momentum of this cause of liberty. But we'd be making a mistake if we didn't talk about all the work that happened before it. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were two activist pastors that remind me of your pastor right here that were traveling America in the 1740s and 1750s and 1760s saying, if you are not in a relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, repent. They were going church after church. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, who is, I think, wrongly described as a deist, one of my famous, one of my favorite um, founding fathers, was very close with uh, George Whitfield. It is said, how many, how many sermons do you think you've given? 10,000, 15,000? They said George Whitfield gave 35,000 sermons without a microphone in open air type environments. Think about how many that is. So it would be a mistake if we didn't talk about the lead up. And the lead up to that hot and humid day in Philadelphia in July, it was really July 2nd, but July 4th was the actual approval. We, we'll get into that later. Let's just say July 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. It was a, multi, a multi-day process. The lead-up was this. It was people that were all of a sudden committing their life to the Lord and churches that were starting to say that, wait, hold on a second. We get our rights from God, not from King George. All of a sudden, it was Christians that were rising up and they were saying, I've given my life to Jesus. I am now walking in obedience to his commands but why is it that all of a sudden we have to continue to honor the divine right of kings? My king is Jesus Christ. Now you see in the 1750s and 1760s, something was happening in America called the First Great Awakening. And the First Great Awakening laid the foundation for everything that happened super quickly in the American founding. But the story they won't tell you in government schools, I don't call them public schools because they're government schools big difference because if they only serve the interest of the public then I would call them public schools I apologize for this microphone here okay so in government schools they won't teach you this but it was Christians in the 1750s and 1760s and early 1770s that were all of a sudden demanding of their leaders a different form of government you see the 56 people that signed the Declaration of Independence historians have tried their best there's one person that's questionable out of 56 but we know as a fact that 55 out of 56 were regular church attending Christians. In fact, 14 out of 56 were pastors. Out of the 56, there was one Catholic, the rest were Protestants. And again, one person that we can't really tell if they had a relationship with the Lord. The point is that we should ask ourselves, why? Why all of a sudden do you get into a room in Philadelphia and you say, you know what? We wanna govern ourselves. Self-government, where does that come from? You see, some historians like Professor Harry Jaffa, he would say that the, the two most consequential moments for this idea of individual liberty was Moses on Mount Sinai and the founding fathers in Independence Hall on July 4th, 1776. You see, we take this for granted because all of us are born into a world we did not create. I'm gonna say that again. All of us are born into a world we did not create. We know nothing but having an independent judiciary, checks and balances, consent of the governed. We think this is normal. In fact, this is the exception. And so when they sat in that very humid room with no air conditioning, by the way, at a port city, which is a very important point, by the way, because they're about to declare war on the greatest naval power in the history of the world, 
while being basically on the highway of the high seas, basically saying, here we are. Right here, we're going to sign this document. We're not going to go sign it in Pittsburgh. We're not going to go sign it inland. No, we are going to go right on the barrier where we know your naval strength is. And we're going to say, King George, we believe this. And we're going to even say where we're signing it in the document. It says Philadelphia in the original document. And so as we had that lead up, there was this discussion that was happening inspired by the most important book ever to exist and the greatest book, the Word of God, the Holy Bible. 66 books, one author, and one common theme. You're made in God's image. We rebelled from him. We tried our best to get our act together. We failed miserably, and we need Jesus Christ to live forever. That's the common theme throughout the entire Bible. That's an overly simplified spark note version. But then it gets to this very important thing. If the most important thing we can do is give our life to Jesus Christ, what's the second most important thing? Is to make sure we can do the first thing. Like to make sure that we can have church. To make sure that we can worship our creator. Now, I want to reemphasize this. Most of human history, and even right now across the world, has a different view of religious liberty than we do right here in our country. This idea of church that you can go and pursue virtue and come in contact with your creator is the exception. It is not the norm. And so when these founding fathers wrote this long but articulate piece, one guy in particular wrote it, Thomas Jefferson, they went through and they said, well, here's the big picture vision, but then we're going to go through the specifics. And they said, hey, King George, we tried, to have you tell, we tried to tell you to get these troops out of our city, and you didn't do that. We told you to stop petitioning the foreign powers, Quebec, and you didn't do that. We told you that we wanted to have our church services interrupted, you didn't do that. We told you to stop burning down our churches, and you didn't do that. You see, what's not always taught is that the fighting was happening before the Declaration. That Lexington and Concord happened in 1775. And the founding fathers were like, can we resolve this peacefully? Can we come to the table and try to figure this out? And they eventually came to the prayerful conclusion that we're going to have to submit this as clearly as we can. That if we're going to have to get to arms, we are going to have to do that. Now, the most famous phrase in the Declaration of Independence, for good reason, is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and also that all men are created equal. No other people up until the Founding Fathers put into writing this idea of human equality. They got that idea straight from the scriptures. Most specifically, neither slave nor Greek nor Jew, we are all one in Jesus Christ. This idea of Greek equality, eleutheria and isonomia are the two words in Greek that are most famously known for it, that it does not matter what you look like. It does not matter where you're from. What matters is that you are a human being. The Declaration of Independence is a human document to protect our right to speak, to reason, to assemble, to associate, to love, to show compassion. The Declaration said that in order for human beings to flourish, we deserve and we have a moral right to be able to have a choice and to have consent over who's in charge. And, it, it, and they were saying, it's not you, King George. Now, some people say, well, Charlie, the founding fathers were a pack of racists, and they knew no different. It's important that, this is important that we go through this. In the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, in Thomas Jefferson's own handwriting, he blames King George for bringing the sin of slavery to the United States. 
And he said, you brought slaves here. You imposed this evil practice into, into, our, into our country. And, he, and Thomas Jefferson went on to say that, King George, your practice of slavery here is something that we are now going to have to decouple with. Now, it didn't make the final draft of the Declaration for many different reasons. Do you know, when was the first ever anti-slavery convention in the world? It was in Philadelphia in 1775, chaired by Benjamin Franklin. The first ever anti-slavery convention in the world. What was the first state to ever abolish slavery? Vermont in 1777, because they were so inspired by Thomas Jefferson's writings saying that all men were created equal. They said, if all men are created equal under God, how could we have the practice of slavery in the state of Vermont? And they independently abolished slavery in 1777. You see, in 2021 eyes, it's very hard to say how could anyone ever have slavery. However, George Washington and Hamilton and Jefferson were born into a world they did not create. They were born into a world with slavery, and by the time they left the world, nine out of 13 of the founding father colonies had already independently abolished slavery by the ratification of the Constitution in 1787. And I'm going to reemphasize this point. We are all born into worlds we did not create. Every founding father was born into a world with slavery. When they died, there was less slavery than ever before. That's a big deal. Thomas Jefferson, a very flawed individual, owned slaves himself, freedom at the time of his death, wrote about the sin of slavery and was a hypocrite. Now, none of us are hypocrites, so we should never, ever dare. Of course, we're all hypocrites. We say one thing and we do something different. We wrestle with our own sin. Some sins are worse than others, and owning a human being is one of the worst things someone can possibly do. But what did Thomas Jefferson do in 1807? Thomas Jefferson, the third American president, was given an opportunity to be the first nation ever to end the slave trade. In the, in the Constitution of the United States, it says in 20 years, Congress will have the ability to end the importation of slaves into the United States of America. On day one, Thomas Jefferson became president. He proudly signed that declaration, and he said, I will never oversee the importation of another slave into the United States of America. In 1807, he did that. Now, it wasn't until the writings and the musings of a man by the name of John C. Calhoun and the cotton gin and many other things that all of a sudden was there a evil and immoral defense to try to resurrect this idea of slavery. It was more of the 1820s. You see, the founding fathers' generation, what we are here to celebrate today, they wrote in their private journals, in their public speeches. They knew they had a problem that they had to get rid of. We know we have problems we have to get rid of too. And let me just say this, there are more slaves on the planet today than there were back in the time of the founding fathers. We have not gotten past this sin. Go look at child sex trafficking, look at the southern border, the Horn of Africa and most of the Islamic world, slavery has not been abolished from the planet. Instead, we should act with a little bit of humility and gratitude and say, how did we get rid of it? We got rid of it through sometimes at first a seamless and then messy process of Christians and truth-tellers being unafraid to be called the worst names in the world and say, we have to do something about that. Thank you. So on July 4th, 1776, this all hit a boiling point. It hit a moment where all of a sudden, 
56 people, 56 men, pledged everything. Now, if you read in the Declaration, at the end of the Declaration of Independence, it says, we pledge our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. But if you notice, they say, we pledge it to each other. You see, these 56 men were making a promise amongst men that they knew. And they were saying, I'm going to be there and I'm going to have your back when all of a sudden it gets tough. I'm going to be there when all of a sudden your village gets burned. Out of the 56 signers, we know that at least five signers within 12 months were captured and tortured. We know that. We know that at least 12 of them had their homes ransacked and their families kidnapped. We know at least nine of the 56 fought and died in the Revolutionary War. So when they signed that document, you better believe they meant it. That they were willing to actually pay that price for liberty. Now, liberty is a big word. We use that word a lot. What is liberty? Let me tell you what liberty isn't. Liberty is not being able to do whatever you want to do it whenever you want to do it as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. That is not liberty. That is a secular version of liberty. Liberty is pursuing virtue, being able to go after things that are good and beautiful and wonderful without somebody getting in the way. Liberty is not man's idea. It is God's idea. And the founding fathers wrote that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that no government, no person should ever be able to get in the way of that. Now, again, it's so easy to take this for granted. We say, oh, yeah, that's so obvious. Duh. We see it now in our 2021 lens. But do we? In the last year, do you think that we lived the tenets of the Declaration well? Do you think we embraced life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Where we put masks on eight-year-old kids and locked down their schools? Where we kept marijuana shops open and our churches closed? Abortion factories open and churches closed? Did we live out the tenets of the Declaration as well as we say we did? What I'm getting at here is that even in our 2021 eyes, we need to recommit ourselves to the ideas of the Declaration of Independence. That first and foremost, you have to govern yourself. You have to say, Lord, I might not be enough, but I want to be obedient to you. That I'm not going to go all of a sudden say that I need someone to come in and take care of me. If, if I do, I will ask for that help. But up until that moment, I'm going to try to say that I'm going to ask the Lord for one of the fruits of the Spirit and self-control and be, at the best of my ability, an independent, an independent person seeking virtue. Now, self-government's hard. Self-government starts with you. Starts with every single person in this room. And in the Declaration, Thomas Jefferson basically tells King George, he's like, look, we're willing to embark on this experiment together. We're willing to go and take the risk and pay the price and go through the cost of this. And also in the Declaration, God is mentioned four times. Now, why is God mentioned four times? God is mentioned as the supreme ruler of all. You see, when Thomas Jefferson finished the Declaration of Independence, in the final paragraph, he says, we appeal these to the supreme ruler of the world. Now, I want you to imagine what King George thought when he read that. He thought he was the supreme ruler of the world. And it was with a capital S. You can go look at it yourself. So King George is reading this. And he says, what do you mean there's someone higher than me? I am the king of England. And Thomas Jefferson says, 
yeah, but we worship the true king. That we have a king above you. And when that appeal was submitted to the supreme being of the world, all of a sudden, everything changed. All of a sudden, there was a reference point that human beings deserve through a moral, a moral submission of government to have a say in how they're governed. Before the Declaration of Independence, outside of the Roman Republic, which was a short-lived example in Republican-style government, small r, not Republican Party, Republican-style government, and in Athens, which was a democracy but fell apart, there's almost no examples of this ever happening. Do you know the common through line from Christ to 1776? There were always more slaves than masters. There were always more people than rulers. There was always more subjects than there were elites. It wasn't until this document was signed that all of a sudden, every single one of you at least had some say or some part of the process. And I'm going to prove it to you right now. If it wasn't for July 4, 1776, a 25-year-old that wanted to all of a sudden make a difference in Washington, D.C., would not have been able to do anything. If it wasn't for July 4th, 1776, Madison, you would have had to just kind of wait in line and hope that you married well and maybe go die in some foreign distant war for some dictator, for some Caesar or some ruler. You see, in the Declaration of Independence is this idea of representative government, that anyone can become president. Anyone, including a 25-year-old or a businessman from New York or someone who forgets everything, anyone can become president. I didn't say any names, by the way. I said no names. This idea of human equality, let's talk about this. Because in this moment in, in our country, I'm very worried about something. And it's time we commit ourselves to the Declaration and the Constitution. The Constitution was a similar, they, they lock perfectly together. Don't let anyone ever tell you that they're that they're contradictory. They're, they're not. Because every complaint that Thomas Jefferson lays out in the Declaration, James Madison and Hamilton Madison solve in the Constitution. Every complaint. One thing I'm very worried about in our country right now, which disturbs me at, at a fundamental level, is that all of a sudden we are deciding to resurrect an evil, pernicious, and anti-biblical idea that skin color matters. I do not care what your skin color is. It is completely and totally irrelevant. I care about your soul and your spirit and your character. This seems obvious to us, but now we are all of a sudden going back into a cycle that is built by Satan to care about what you look like. When Frederick Douglass, a slave himself, decided to contest for freedom and liberty, he said that there is no document ever written that is better to try to get towards that sort of political equality than the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. I encourage anyone and anywhere to go through every single word of the Declaration of the Constitution and show me anywhere there's even an inference of skin color it does not exist. Instead, people say, well, Charlie, all the writers were of a specific color. Of course that's true. But show me where all of a sudden they say that a specific color should be given a preference. 
Show me then why Martin Luther King Jr., when he gave the famous speech, he said, and he held up the Declaration of the Constitution, he said, this is a promissory note for all human beings, and we are here to cash it today. Martin Luther King Jr. said that himself, that the ideals in the Constitution are eternal. They are timeless. And look, times change, but human beings don't. That human nature is the norm. And so if we have a central organizing principle that is anti-tribalism, we should embrace that. You see, it's tempting to want to go back to tribes, everybody. Tribes are bad. But tribes are kind of what we want. That we want the sinful tribe. We want people that just look like us. We want people that just think like us. We want people that, that we say, well, we don't, we don't want to be part of that, that. We want to be only a part of the same race. Race is completely irrelevant to the Lord. Instead, what matters is we have truth and we have light. We want to spread it to as many people as possible. But I'm telling you right now, we are slipping as a nation for a lot of different reasons. And we're saying, eh, this idea of all men created equal, this idea of the Constitution. Instead, we want justice or we want equity or we want to all of a sudden have discrimination today to try to right the discriminations of yesterday. These are real things that are being expressed in schools, by the way. And let me tell you right now, that America has made plenty of mistakes and people before us have made plenty of mistakes and people are making mistakes now, but America is not a mistake. That this country has given more opportunity and more liberty and more ability for any human being, regardless of skin color, to succeed and thrive and dream and build a meaningful life than any other nation in the history of the world. You see, it's, it's... A French judge by the name of Montesquieu wrote a book called The Spirit of Laws that inspired a lot of the founding fathers. And he predicted something. He said, if you're going to try to have a big, large country that's a republic, it's probably going to fail. He said, because people are always going to try to go back to their tribes. You see, I grew up in an America, 10 years ago, where (laughs) if anyone was talking about skin color or cared about it, We'd say, no, 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 we, we, we want to have a discussion on character, a discussion on your choices, not about things that you can't change. Here's the best way I can separate it. A nation that is headed in a troubling direction focuses on things a human being cannot change. A nation that is heading in a righteous direction focuses on things that you can change. We should always focus on things that people themselves can change, and we should de-emphasize the unchangeable. Now, why does that matter? Because all of a sudden, if you focus on things you can't change, you are disempowering your citizenry. All of a sudden, you're like, yeah, you're the problem, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's pretty, that's pretty awful, isn't it? That's pretty harsh, because then all of a sudden, people say, wait, hold on. I'm a racist just because I look a certain way? Yes, and you know what? You have to sit down and shut up. Wow, that, that's, that's awfully disempowering. You know what that does? That creates more division. That creates more fault lines. That create, and, and let me just say this. I, I, I always say this at every speech. If there is someone out there that is harboring racial resentment, you need to go find Jesus. You need to find the Lord. And, 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 and there are people out there that, that hold those views. But let me, let me double down on this. Just because you look a certain way does not automatically mean you are harboring those thoughts or those feelings or those beliefs. Your mere existence as a human being looking a certain way does not put you in a category that automatically means you you feel or you believe a certain thing. You see, in the Declaration of Independence, this idea that all men are created equal, 
does not mean that every human being has the same sort of talents. Some people are better at basketball than others. Some people are better at singing than others. That is not what they were getting at. It does not mean that every human being will end with the most amount of stuff. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to be as rich at the time of death. That is not what they meant. Instead, it's a biblical view of equality, meaning that every human being, including the preborn, are in, have, a, have a right to be protected and a right under the law. So, as we look back at this, there's a word that the founding fathers had that I think that we all need to try to apply to our own lives, and that is courage. The founding fathers had courage, but before they had courage, they were prayerful and they were prudent. They were focused on what was right and what was good. They did not do this lightly. They tried every way they possibly could to try to prevent this from happening. But I know a lot of you right now are in moments that require some courage. Maybe you're being forced to get a vaccine against your will. Maybe all of a sudden you are being suppressed in a classroom because you're a Christian and your professor says, there is no God and if you say it, you're gonna get graded down differently. Maybe you have a boss that is saying that if you do not subscribe to my certain political views, then all of a sudden you're a bad person and you might lose your job. What I'm trying to get at here is that sometimes we make a mistake and we look at these documents as, a, as disconnected from our own reality. See, I want you to think about the young Thomas Jefferson that's writing this document. Starts really wide, gets specific, and ends wide. And he's writing this and he says, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve ties with another, that we all hold these truths to be self-evident. That's a beautiful phrase, self-evident. What does that mean? That means that every single individual can come to these conclusions outside of blood right or ancestry, that every human being has this capacity and this ability. And you look at that and you inspire and you ask, you ask yourself, does that inspire anyone to maybe take a course of action right now that will be filled with courage? Now, what is courage? We talk about it a lot. It's doing the right thing when you don't know the result. That's courage. Let me be honest. Me speaking here today, it's not courage. It's fun, it's enjoyable, it's meaningful, it's important, not courage. Now when we go to University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, it's a little bit different, right? Or Duke, whatever place that they're teaching the kids to, to hate the country. A little bit, little bit more courage. I, pr I promised I wouldn't mention a certain professor at UNC Chapel Hill, I promised. But, uh, Anyway, that's okay. The 1619 Project is garbage. Happy to tell you why later. But anyway, yes. So um, courage is when every single one of you come to that tension point. I want you to imagine what would have happened if those 56 signers all of a sudden would have got, got a little bit nervous, a little bit anxious. What if on July 2nd when they actually agreed, what if all of a sudden they were filled with fear, which is not of the Lord, and they would have said, hey, we really don't have it that bad. It's not a big deal. They're burning down our churches, which is a real thing Britain was doing, by the way, just so you know. It's in, it's in the declaration. Let's just, let's sue for peace. Let's just kind of, King George is a reasonable man. We can figure it out. It's not like we're going to win. 
I want you to imagine what would have happened if they would have walked away. We, would, we, don't, we wouldn't know. Would this country exist? Probably not. Would we be kind of part of some sort of European colony in perpetuity? All we know is that what came before the Declaration, what came before the Constitution, laid the groundwork perfectly for this revolution of self-government. But it applies to every single one of us. And so we ask ourselves this question here in 2021. As we see our liberties and we see our freedoms and we see these principles kind of wither away, who do we have to now say peacefully do we declare independence from? And we have to ask ourselves the question of, is this document still applicable? Remember how it opens. It says when in the course of human events. It does not say in the year 1776. It says it could be applicable today. It could be applicable 10 years from now. Now, this is an important thing, is that some people say, well, Charlie, the founding fathers were in violation of Romans 13 by trying to, to declare war on Great Britain. Romans 13 is a passage of scripture that says to obey the rule, I'm going to paraphrase, rulers in authority and to submit to them. What's really interesting, who declared war on who? Did the founding fathers declare war on Great Britain or did Great Britain declare war on the founding fathers? If you write the Declaration of Independence, they are asking, can we resolve this peacefully? And they say, you're the one burning down our communities. You're the one putting the troops in our, in our homes. You're the one, and like, we'd love to be able to come and do this the right way, but if you keep on pushing us to this, we're gonna have no choice. And so, that, that spirit of courage and not of fear is something the American church needs to recommit itself to. And think about what happened after the war. They won. This is how amazing the founding fathers were. And we, we, we remember all of this here this weekend. Yorktown was the final battle. Treaty of Paris wasn't signed until 1783. And they're the first winners ever. And I, I encourage anyone ever to find me an example in history because you won't find it. And if, if you do, maybe there's some tribe in like Papua New Guinea where this is true. I don't know. First winners ever in history to that date that win, and then give up power. Show me an example anytime. You think Alexander the Great, after he conquered the Middle East, was like, you know what, actually, I'm going to let you govern yourselves. I'm not going to put in any sort of my codes or customs. How about Napoleon, when Napoleon conquered all of Europe? Do you think he gave up power? What am I getting at here? They could have created the Washingtonian, Madisonian, Hamiltonian dynasties. They win, and then they say, cooperatively, now we want to create a system that makes it harder for these abuses to happen again. They are the first people to be the victors and then say, we want to make sure that this sort of pattern of abuses does not continue. And what the Constitution fulfills is the concerns of the Declaration, the Constitution ratified in 1787, which of course starts with we the people in order to form a more perfect union, is this idea of you, as a human being, have a moral right to be free. Now, what is, what is articulated in both documents is this idea that you're made in the image of God, that you have a moral right to associate in a church and your community to grow closer to your creator because the founding fathers knew one thing. 
They knew that human nature will always try to organize themselves in some way to prevent this from happening. That they knew that the church, that Christians, that freedom fighters were always a thorn in the side to tyrants and despots and dictators. I want to reemphasize this point. The only reason when those 56 men signed that document over the next six weeks after July 2nd and July 4th that they didn't turn around and all of a sudden the people were like, well, what do you mean? Why did you sign that? By the way, that did happen with some people, by the way. They were traitors. About 33% of all people that lived in the American colonies went and fought for the British. 33% did nothing, and the final 25% fought for the American revolutionary cause. And really, 3% of the American founders ended up actually fighting in the front lines of it. Now, that should give you all hope, because that means small groups of dedicated people can make a very, very big difference. But to reemphasize this, the only reason when they turned around, they went back to these communities, the people they went home to in Fredericksburg, Virginia, when they went home in Burlington, Vermont, right near Lake Champlain, and they had to say, we got to go raise an army. We need Minutemen that we needed to call the minute that people were able and willing to do that is because the church was vocal about issues that mattered in the 1740s and 1750s and 1760s. And so now we look, we can really take a 35,000-foot view here in year of 2021. I'll close with this, and then we'll do some questions. Is that Was it a good thing that those men, those 56 men, signed that document on a humid day in Philadelphia? Has the world become a place that is more or less likely to embrace truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ? That in the span of what has happened since 1776, the international slave trade was abolished. That tyranny in almost every hemisphere, when it has reared its head, is defeated by a sovereign nation that never asked for land in return except land to bury our own dead. From the airplane to the elevator, to the ability to smash and crush polio, to air conditioning, thank goodness, to the automobile, to the assembly line, to a standing army that does not wish to conquer lands except liberate people. Those 56 men that signed that document on July 4, 1776, gave a gift to humanity, and that gift was the United States of America. And now today, we look at our country and we have to say, we've had it great. I'm 27 years old. I run a whole organization, Turning Point USA, that is focused on trying to change this. We have lived lives of luxury and convenience. We have what we need when we want it. Our complaint is not having soldiers quartered in our homes, as Thomas Jefferson said, Our complaint is not one of self-government. Instead, it's the Amazon delivery box is not coming as quickly as I would like. We are now at this point. That's It's an open-ended question. And I know where my hope in this question lies, and I'm actually standing in the very building, is will people that were given so much that they didn't earn decide to do a little bit to save something that's bigger than themselves? Will people that were born into this framework that was fought for and bled for and died for, that was saw in the vision of John Adams who said on July 2nd, he wrote this beautiful letter to Abigail and he said, 
July 2nd or July 4th will always be remembered in history as a day that people said that we want to govern ourselves. And then you look at Abraham Lincoln. Oh my goodness, what an amazing president. And Abraham Lincoln in the Cooper Union speech, one of the, most, the greatest speeches ever, said that if America is going to continue to exist, it's moral people filled with the Spirit contesting for truth in times of crisis. Abraham Lincoln knew America's founding was not when we appointed a president. He knew our founding was not at the Bill of Rights. He knew our founding was the great leap forward. That great great leap forward was when in a room that had, again, no air conditioning and they're sweating outside that they couldn't imagine that they said, okay, we're going all in. We believe the Bible. We know what it says. We're tired of being pushed around and we're going to put everything we possibly can into it. That all the way to the trials of our republic, look how much this beautiful country we love that we celebrate, I see all these American flags, it gives me such happiness, has been through. And what we've done for the betterment of liberty and humanity. And here we are in 2021, and I'm going to end with kind of a call to urgency here before we go to questions. We're on fragile footing. That now this republic that we should applaud and appreciate and thank the Lord for is now in jeopardy. That this republic... Our home is now an open-ended question. Will we go the way where we want to play the victim all day long or will we be victors first and foremost in Christ and we will say that I don't want to get more free handouts from the government. I just want the government to leave me alone and I can raise my children the way I want to and go to church and do things as I see fit. Will we, as a country, be able to teach our children the values that we hold? We need to say that we want to create a we want to create an America where we want our kids to love America again. And so, and I'll I'll say this, and I know we're going right to questions. People say all the time, Charlie, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Well, what was done is after those 56 men went back home, everyone asked them the same question. They said, So Jan- John Hancock, you're trying to tell me we did what? And he's like, there's going to be a war, and we're going to need all your help. So he went to tavern after tavern after tavern, and most people were like, yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to go watch Netflix and uh, Hulu and, you know, whatever people do now for fun, right? And the people that were filled with courage and the spirit, they said, I want in. So what does that look like for you? Guess what? It's so much easier. It's like running for school board. It's asking questions of teachers that are they're educating your children. It's supporting the good guys in Congress. It's having a heightened sense of awareness of what's happening in your news cycle. It is supporting the churches that are willing to contest for freedom and liberty and the well-being of our nation like this very church. It's the call to action you guys can fill in. The, the issue and the point that I think we're all seeing right now is that we have it great, what are we willing to do to save it? And I know that all of you, and I could sense the passion, the intensity here, the answer is quite a lot. Because we, we were given this nation that we quite honestly, it's better than we even deserve. And, right, and tonight, I want everyone to say and to pledge to yourself, I am willing to do more. I'm willing to speak out, and I don't care about the cost of it. I am willing to either run for local office, I don't care the cost of it, and I'm willing to contest for what is true and what is beautiful and what is good, regardless of what the opposition tries to do. Because I am inspired, as I am reminded tonight at this event, 
that it took just 56 people, and there's more than 56 people here tonight, that forever changed the course of history. Thank you guys so much. Let's do some questions. We're going to switch to a handle. Hello? Okay. All right, anybody that wants to get in the lines for questions, we're going to have a line on both sides. You can go out around and fill in the aisles here. And Charlie, my name is Olin Carter. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm going to ask one while we're letting everybody get in line, one that's been coming up a lot recently. Um, for those people in our church, and we're getting this more and more often, um, that are... Uh, being bombarded at work with equity and inclusion training, um, kids are getting taught things, parents are like, oh my God, what is the best way, especially in the corporate world, practical steps for people to push back? Yeah, it's a great question. I just switched to a handheld, everybody. So, uh, Yeah, look, um, the truth is that if you're going to speak out against the equity, inclusion nonsense that's happening at a lot of these companies, you have to be willing to lose your job. And so I... I I'm, I make a habit out of this, always on our podcast, on our radio show, to never tell the audience something that is not true. Um, you have to be willing to lose your salary, your benefits, and your entire career. For some people, that is not something they're willing to do, and so that's, that's, that's the way it is. Um, what, if you're willing to do that, then I can inform you that you should then form a group and association of other employees that share those values go to the person with the most amount of power in the company and confront them with the facts of what these are, but you will be called a racist, uh, you will be called a bigot, and they will do everything they possibly can to make sure you're run out of that company. Um, and so I'm not trying to depress people, I am just trying to make sure you know what you're signing up for here, right? Um, and here's something that's really hard for those of us that have grown up with so much and things are so great. Getting our country back to truth and freedom is going to cost every single one of you something. And it might cost you your job, it might cost you your livelihood, it'll definitely cost you friends, and it will 100% cost you social status. If you think we could take back America, and you can keep all your life exactly as is, and then better in that direction, you're fooling yourselves. And let's just go back to the founding fathers. By the way, I'm not asking anyone to go to this length, that five signers were captured and tortured and 12 had their homes ransacked and their families kidnapped and nine of, nine of the 56 fought and died in the Revolutionary War. I'm not asking you to do that. But you look at those, you, 12 plus, that's like 27 out of 56 either died or had their families kidnapped or their whole houses burned to the ground. The, the short lesson there is that it requires some cost and there's a price to it, right? And so, um, but generally I will say though on the corporate side of it, it's very, very disturbing at these weak CEOs that are bringing in these this pernicious ideas into these companies. So um, let's, I want to get to as many questions as we can. So please just keep it as a question, not as, you know, a speech with a question mark. So, all right, we'll start with the best. Pro okay, we'll start over there. Okay. 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 Hi. You do what I say? Okay. Go ahead. I don't know what's happening. Um, Charlie, thank you for being here, and thank you to Freedom House for having you. Um, I have a question about, we were, you were just talking about schools, and so I, have, I know a lot of people who've been pulling their kids out of school 
and homeschooling them. I know not everyone can do that, but is, is that something, should we be trying to do that over, should we just let our, the government schools go to the government or should we try to disrupt that system that's messing with our kids and what's the, what should we do? I just don't know what to do. It's a great question. Um, so first, if you can homeschool your kids, I highly encourage it. I know not everyone can do that. Uh, it's easier than you might think, and there's some phenomenal resources available. In fact, I think that we can save the country by doubling our homeschooling population in the next five years. And let, let me also just add a point here. And I know it sounds way easier. You know, it's easy for me to say that, not for those of you that work two jobs and you have to, it's unrealistic and it's very intimidating to a lot of parents. I know that and I appreciate that. But I will say, for anyone out there that's retired, especially in your church community, um, go find someone who's thinking of homeschooling and find that parent be like, hey, I'd be willing to chip in for a day a week to help teach them social, social studies or whatever it might be. The solution is going back to the little church house on how we used to educate our children in the country. And I could tell you that there are a lot of retirees that say, Charlie, what can I do? And I say, how many young people are you mentoring and how many homeschooling families are you assisting or supporting? Now, it's interesting. When I ask them that, they say, well, I'm not qualified to support homeschooling. I say, no, no, no. You can go run groceries for the parents too. You can be an adjunct support arm for the homeschooling parents, even if it's not involved in the actual education. What I'm getting at is that the church, in my opinion, the retirees in particular that have a lot of time and a lot of wisdom can help these mothers that want to homeschool because of the government schools. Now, even if you don't have children in the schools right now, every single person should be involved and engaged and aware of what's happening at the school board level. Every single person. It says in 1 Timothy, to pray for your leaders and authority by name so that you might live quiet and peaceable lives. I challenge every audience of churches everywhere I, I, I travel, how many people can name every school board member and you pray for them by name and what issues they're grappling with or dealing with. Very few churches can say that. And by the way, myself included up until recently, because I've started to show up at school board meetings in Arizona. And by the way, it's a lot of fun. It's really fun. And we posted that video on Instagram. It's, it's really easy. So let me tell you how it works, okay? So you show up. Of course, it's, it's overly legalistic, first of all. They make the rules intentionally hard. And they, they, they hold the meetings at the weirdest times, right? Because they don't want anyone to show up, of course. And so when you show up, you got to register a certain way and sign in a certain way. And they only let a certain amount of people in. And you walk in, you feel like you're walking into the U.S. Supreme Court, right? No, because they sit above you. Whoever thought it was a good idea to have the school board members sit as if they're like the supreme? Like, no, it should be the opposite. We should be above them, right? But anyway, that's a separate point. And then they call you for public comment. Public comment is usually at the front end. You get a minute or two minutes or three minutes. You get your thoughts together and you, you talk to your school board member and you tell them what is on your mind and that's it. It's pretty simple. Now I could tell you, it makes a huge difference. Like when we showed up to the Chandler Unified School District and all of a sudden 300 parents showed up with the same complaint saying, we don't want CRT, we don't want this woke nonsense, get it out of our schools. And to complete the point is that every single one of us have been taken advantage of by these school boards because we trusted them not to do anything overly revolutionary while we raised our kids, right? We're going to go pick our kids and bring them to football practice. We're going to try to get them to youth group. Next thing you know, you turn around and you're sixth grader at the local public school 
is being taught the most radical ideas imaginable. They violated an agreement of trust. Many of these people ran for school board on very boring platform issues, like elect me and I'll make sure they have more erasers or like whatever it is, right? It's like, yeah, okay, that's the eraser guy, right? Okay, fine. Or like, you know, I'm gonna make sure that there's plentiful hand sanitizer for the students. Like, okay, sure. And like, no one votes in these, it's like sub 8% of, of involvement. And next thing you know, they go to these school board meetings and they're like, you know what we need? We need the most radical, unproven, anti-American curriculum implemented. And I don't care what people think. Like, no, actually, you didn't run on that. And you lied to us all. And now we're going to recall you and hold you accountable. And that's what needs to start happening. And so even if you're homeschooling, I highly encourage you to be heavily involved in your local school boards. Okay, we'll get to the next question. Um, hey, Charlie. Um, my name is Matthew Saka. I'm from um, Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. So my question for you is, uh, you looked really excited when I said Taylor University. No, I know Taylor, but not for the reason. It's yeah, not for a good yeah, we reason, fired so. our really good uh, professor. He's one of my mentors. Good. So yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so um, why do you think the church is so divided on topics that the Bible is very clear about? That is such a good point, uh, question. I'll tell you exactly. The, the answer is so easy. It's because half of the American church believes the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and the other half of the American church does not believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And that's about it, right? So I, I, could, go, I could go and do it further, but... Um, Look, it, it all, all kind of goes back to, do you believe the scriptures actually say what they say? Or do you think that all of a sudden, you know, there's this great Instagram account I encourage you guys all to check out called Woke Jesus. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And it's, it's like what Woke Jesus would say. It was like Woke Jesus walking with his disciples saying, you know, in 2,000 years, I'm going to bring a bunch, there'll be a bunch of PhDs that are going to walk the earth and tell you what the gospels really mean. Like, no, Jesus didn't actually say that, right? And it's very, very clear of what the gospel is and how it resonates with every, every human being. Um, but it really kind of comes down to that. It comes down to, do you think the scriptures are an allegory? Do you think they're a metaphor? Or do you think that they're, they're an, the inerrant word of God? And I think bad politics in the church stems from bad theology in the church. So thank you, man. God bless you. I'm Gary Leone from Cornelius, North Carolina. And Charlie, I'm, I'm humbled that on such an important day, you'd be here in Charlotte with us. Thank you. Um, actually, and I want to share that our, uh, there's a group of us locally that are being very active. We are, um, as a matter of fact, one has, Madison Cawthorn has just agreed to speak with one of our groups. But we are getting active and are working in the local areas. But there are things happening that are very insidious at a national level. And one of them I'd like you to talk about and tell us what we can do about is Agenda 21 and all that's doing about property rights, about ecology, et cetera, that taking away all of our liberties. Yeah, I mean, look, Agenda 21 is even beyond, it's an international um, plan by the United Nations, World Health Organization, and others. It all kind of goes back to this idea of sovereignty and whether or not you actually are able to have self-determination. Um, there's, there's very little, I'm going to be very honest, that you can do about Agenda 21 except raise awareness about it and then have your elected officials in Congress actually push back against it, right? And so one thing that ties into Agenda 21, though, is pandering to the Chinese Communist Party and giving them 
uh, I think, an unfair pass. And something that our elected leaders can do, and Madison's been doing a great job of this, is getting down to the truth, which we all really know what it is, of where did this virus come from and was it manufactured in a laboratory and sprung on the rest of the world. This matters a lot because once that question is definitively answered, which it basically has been, then all of a sudden we can have a serious question about, well, how are you going to compensate the rest of the world for infecting, you know, millions and millions of Americans and then resulting in a lockdown there. And so, but the problem is this, is that sometimes I think, and I'm not saying you, some conservatives get too focused on things we cannot change and then we, we lose focus on things we can change. Um, the deliberations at the World Economic Forum or in the World Health Organization, there's very little a North Carolina citizen can do about that, unfortunately. Congressmen can do something about it. They can speak about it. Hopefully, we'll eventually get a majority back where we can have subpoena power again. Because there's, you know, kind of some of that power has been sort of diminished. But here's what I can tell you what you can do. You can make sure the people in your local community, it sounds like you're doing this, are alert and aware so that they will not be taken advantage of if and when those things actually try to get implemented. And whether it comes from property rights, from water rights, there's all sorts of different things I could talk about when it comes to Agenda 21. And one of their components, by the way, is schooling. One of the components of it is schooling, and that's why I'm such a, a big fan of family-centric style education um, in our country. So thank you so much for your question. I appreciate that. Uh, my name is Naplensa Saka. I'm from Liberia, West Africa. I thought your mother did a good job. I want you... <laughs> yeah. I would love to be a proud mother like the mom. I want you to tell me a little bit about your mother and call her full name. <laughs> so her name is Catherine Kirk. She's the greatest person ever. And um, she's, she's phenomenal. And she's from Chicago. And my parents were very, very involved um, with my upbringing. But the thing that they always allowed me to do was to kind of chart my own course and then have to take responsibility if it works or it doesn't work. And I will say this, they were parents first and then friends second, and that's a very important thing. Very important. And, and they made sure I had Christian education early in my life, which was awesome. And so, and then they were also very, very focused, both my mother and my father, um, on making sure that I encountered difficulty at a young age. They were more focused on trying to make sure I developed self-control than self-esteem. And for young men in particular, I love talking to young men. I love uh, Troy's shirt, Make Men Men Again. It's terrific. One of the reasons why it, you know, we've... <laughs> One of the reasons why this is a problem is that uh, with young men, we emasculate them to such a significant degree in our country. And we almost... We, we back away from this idea of challenging young men to take responsibility for their actions and to build something meaningful. Instead, it's kind of the Lost Boys in Peter Pan where we just kind of throw them out into the world and hope it all kind of works out and ends up not. So, but I appreciate that question very much and God bless you. So, and Liberia is a, I, I think you said you were from Liberia, is that right? Yeah, Liberia, yeah, Liberia is a great country. It was founded by President Monroe. Uh, and the capital of Liberia is Monrovia. Um, and so, actually, Liberia comes from the root liberty, li Liberia liberty. So God bless you. So it's a great country. 
Hi, Charlie. Uh, my name's Elijah Burke. I'm from Rochester, New York. And I'll oh, say wow. that 15 months ago, my For You page on TikTok decided to show me videos of you answering questions with people like me. And now I'm here, so I'm humbled wow. to be here. Um, before you came up, Madison said he believes the government doesn't want to shut down the churches, rather control what the pastors say. Um, reminded me of a video I watched where you mentioned that our government is trying to shut down the church altogether so that people, at least in the lockdowns, that people have no higher power, power for morality to hear from, less people are saved, and the word of communal gathering of believers is stripped from us. I think both viewpoints have merit, and given what you've seen over the past 15 months, could you expand more on what you think the government's agenda for the church in the U.S. is? Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal question. First of all, thank you. And I think, so, I'll start with, I think both Madison, Madison and I are both right in the sense that they want to try to shut down churches, some churches. Now, this is a really important thing, is that if you look at the history of the Soviet Union, we don't teach our children the history of the Soviet Union, which was a dark and awful chapter in humanity, over 30 million people murdered that we know of, that they didn't shut down all the churches. They shut down the churches they didn't like. And so they would love to have the churches that are obedient to them and that are loyal to them, right? Like the churches with the people that have really expensive tennis shoes or whatever, right? You know, those types of churches that are perfectly fine with BLM Incorporated and perfectly fine with all those, you know, like the, whatever. Not saying any names, right? But that's, that's where we're at there. The point is that this type of church, they find to be disagreeable. They want to shut down this type of church. The type of church that proclaims truth and thinks the word of God is inerrant and must be put first. And let me give you an example of this. H.R. 5 is a bill that passed the House. Madison, you didn't vote for that, thankfully. I don't even, I mean, it was, uh, I don't think any Republican voted for it, actually. And basically it says that if you preach from your church that God created man and God created woman and that the transgender nonsense is in defiance to what the word of God says, you could be subject to hate speech laws. And so... Now, what does that mean? That means that if you're one of those churches that has those gay pride flags, then you'll be fine. But if you're a church that says that I believe in very simple biblical truth of God created man and God created woman, and the same could be said for the pro-life issue. And so I think where we're at right now is that they want an obedient church and they want a subservient church. But a, a church that is always seeking truth by definition will never be agreeable and it will never be subservient to the state. The point Madison made is a really, really important one, is that tyrants and despots and leaders and dictators, they hate these types of churches because when you come here every single Sunday, and I encourage you guys to come back tomorrow, we're gonna have new messages for tomorrow, by the way, is that you're not saying, like all of a sudden, you know, praise Joe Biden, he's in the sky, we love him. Instead, you're saying, you know what? No, there's something more important than the President of the United States, Jesus Christ, that bothers them. They don't like the idea of citizens worshiping something higher than them. And then all of a sudden, when you... See, life is a series of hierarchies. So life is a series of you organizing things based on how important they are. This is something that the Marxists refuse to admit, but even they themselves live this out. For example, you need to eat, you need to breathe, you know, hopefully you shower, things like that, right? And then eventually it's like, well, what is the thing I believe more than any other thing? What's the thing that's the most important thing for me to believe? For the other side, it is governmental power and being able to be in control and charge. For, here, for people here tonight, that's none of it. Your important, the most important thing for you here is like, look, 
I'm a human being made in the image of God. I was given by grace an opportunity to come back in a relationship with his son, who is an equal part of the Godhead, and praise God through nothing that I earned or I did, I'm able to go to heaven. That's the most important thing for everyone here tonight. And that will always bother the people that worship the other. So thank you so much. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Charlie. Uh, my name is Dan Gorman from Mooresville, North Carolina. And quick question, uh, kind of two parts. Number one, would you ever consider running for president? All right. And I'm sure you've probably heard that all over the country. Number two, if you had to do it today, who would you choose as your running mate? <laughs> Madison Cotham. So, um, no, I'm not running for everything. I get this question a lot. I'm going to leave all the Washington, D.C. stuff to Madison. Um, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. You know, it's very funny is that when I say that, people are like, I don't want to be a congressman anymore. I'm sure Madison's having a ball. But the point is that, you, you know, you wouldn't be able to pay me enough money to go do that. To go sit in some subcommittee hearing, to go, you know, hear it, these people scream about nothing, and you've got like three minutes to make your point, and you've got to keep on re-raising all this money. It's like, oh, my goodness. I do two podcasts a day. We host three hours of radio a day. I give 330 speeches a year. We have hundreds of thousands of young people that we are organizing every single day on campus. I know we are making a difference. And for me personally, that is very, very satisfying. And also, and Madison actually is the exception to this, I'll say. I get to say what I want to say whenever I want to say it. Most politicians are always like so careful about that. I will say Madison is able to speak his mind freely, which is one of the reasons why he won. And I never want to have to just be put in a box and be worried about what some you know, attack ad would have to be launched against kind of me or kind of what that would be. But I think that we need both people in elected office and outside of elected office that are proclaiming the truth and doing things that matter. Hey, Charlie. William Ho from Indian Trail, North Carolina. Uh, thanks for being here. My wife, I've attended Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, and I'm very happy that you're here and see you here. Um, I knew that God brought us to the right place because this church, as far as I have the cojones to stand up to the state versus the state imposing uh, their will on us. Uh, so my question is, um, I'll be speaking at our local uh, school board meeting, and uh, what are some practical things that we can tell them in regards to the CRT that they're trying to input and then masking for the children? That's a great, so you said masks for the children? Masks for the children. Okay, so great, great question. First of all, thank you for those kind words, and thank you for being here. It really means a lot. So I want to just compliment you. Thank you for saying you're going to go to your local school board meeting. Every single person here should make that similar commitment. So thank you. And, you know, that, that takes time for you to carve out of your schedule. you got to go there and take some courage. you got to speak publicly. you got to be able to own up to your words. Let's start with the masking of children. Masking of children is child abuse. It just is. It's that simple. That there is not one study that shows that putting a cloth over a child makes any sort of difference at all whatsoever. Now, let me, let me tell you why people want to put masks on children. This is a very important point is that it's not for the children's sake, it's for the parents' sake. They wanna feel better about themselves and they wanna feel less guilty if one of the children gets the virus. They wanna say, well, we did everything we possibly could and I'll be able to live with myself. Even though there are mass, first of all, it does very little to nothing to stop the transmission 
And by the way, have you ever seen how these children wear masks? It's a joke, okay? No, it really is. It's like all over the place on their head. It's, it's an absolute joke, okay? So let's talk, even, if, even if they work all the time, by the way, the moment you touch it, it completely loses all of its, any sort of benefit it might have. And I'm not getting into the whole mask thing. Just go look at the studies yourself and you can come to your own conclusion. Go look at the study out of Denmark. Go look at the study out of the Netherlands. You can go see it yourself and then you guys can come back and you know, you, maybe you're pro, maybe you're anti, whatever. I'm not gonna get into that. What I am gonna get into though is the very obvious social costs of masking eight-year-olds. And the obvious social costs are that it dehumanizes the eight-year-old. It makes them more likely to follow orders unquestionably. It makes them more likely to, it makes them less likely to communicate with their fellow friends. It makes them more harsh, more distant from their fellow, um, from their fellow classmate. We are now re-engineering entire generations of children for what? That some soccer mom can feel better about herself because she's afraid that someone's gonna get the virus. Like, no, that's about your ego, not about the children's health. And so we have to get rid of that entire masking of children. So, to the point about CRT, and I wanna try to get to some more questions here. Um, I've done very, very long podcasts on critical race theory. Um, I would, one way you guys could help us tonight. Um, we do, again, as I mentioned, two podcasts a day. We probably have about 30 podcasts and about, let me get this right, about 45 hours of content on just critical race theory from a biblical perspective, from an American perspective, from a Western perspective, almost all of your questions answered. So I don't want to spend too much time on that. But if everyone here would subscribe to my podcast, every single Smartphone has a podcast app. I know it's silly, it's self-promotional, but it actually helps us a lot because we're always under attack from Google and all these big companies. And so when you guys pull out your phones and do that, it blesses us significantly. So thank you guys very much for doing that. If you don't know how to do that on your podcast app, there's a 14-year-old around here somewhere that could help you. Um, I'm sure that whether it be on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it does bless me a lot. But let me just say this as quickly as I possibly can because uh, we actually don't have to overthink this, okay? Critical race theory is continuing a tradition that we thought was dead, which is caring about skin color, not values and character, the soul or the spirit of a human being. It is bigoted, it is racist, and it is evil, and it has no place in the United States of America. So that, that's the best way I could put it. Hey, my name's Hamilton, and I'm 14, and I was, I'm actually 14, but... Hey, yeah. You can help everyone subscribe. Yeah. So for high schoolers that are wondering about going to college, and you and Madison both talked about how much college has changed with student loans and all that they're teaching. Do you think it's worth it to go to college now? So first, I just have to get a picture of Madison and Hamilton together. It'll be like, it'll be the Federalist Papers recreated. So that would just be the coolest thing ever. Is your name actually Hamilton? That is so cool, by the way. That is awesome. Big fan. Uh, that's, yeah, that, that's right. We met earlier. So um, permission to speak candidly, Troy, about college? Okay, granted, good. Um, so look, I don't say this to offend anyone. You guys know that I'm just trying to speak the truth here. College is largely a scam for most people, okay? And it, it, is, it is unbelievably overrated. I will prove it to you. So I'll prove it to you statistically. I'll prove it to you in more ways than one. So how often do you hear this question poised to a high school senior? Hey, where are you going to college? Rarely do we say, hey, why are you going to college? There is an expectation that we have that every child must go to college. Do you know the national graduation rate in college is 59%? That means 41% of people that go to college do not graduate. 
Now, out of the people that graduate, they have an average of a $32,000 student loan. $32,000 in student loan debt. Now, out of the people that graduate, they have a bunch of debt. They're filled with ideas such as how to hate the country, how to revolutionize the country and all that. And then out of those people, only 15% of college graduates in the last five years have found jobs that are directly relevant to their major. So they're, you know, they're studying North African lesbian poetry or Central American migratory bird studies or you know, per Peruvian underwater dancing or whatever it is, right? Just, and they're like, I can't find a job. Like, oh really? Why? And I will say this before every parent launches a revolt against me, is that some people, college is the answer, right? If you want to become a doctor or a lawyer, an engineer, if you want a very specific skill. My opinion would be different if every college was like Hillsdale College. My opinion would be different if college was about the liberal arts, if college was about pursuing truth and defending liberty. It's not. The way college should be is you should have children in a room and say, I'm gonna tell you how little you know, I'm gonna tell you how to find out you could find truth by the time you graduate, let's go on that journey together. Instead, they do the opposite. They bring all the kids in the room and they say, Everything you've been taught about the world is a lie. Your parents are racist and they don't realize it. And there is no truth. There is no beauty. There is no God. And I'm going to teach you how to tear it all down because that's all that actually matters. So these wonderful parents, they send their kids off to college and they come back for Thanksgiving. And all of a sudden like, oh, hey, honey, welcome home for Thanksgiving. Actually, those aren't my right pronouns. And the Turk... And they're like, okay, fine, you know, let's, let's have some turkey. Like, did the turkey consent to being killed? Because this, this is a colonialist holiday, and this is a war. Like, what? And, and, the, and the parents are like, I'm paying for this? And so the entire system is upside down, right? So let me just be, here, here are good reasons to go to college. Here are the good reasons. I want to be X, this school will give me that skill and I could do it in a short period of time and I could, I could do it for a little amount of money. Here are bad reasons to go to college, which the list is lost much longer. My parents are making me, bad reason. Social pressure, well, all my friends are going, bad reason. Good football team, the worst reason, right? <laughs> like the worst, I hear that. I asked them like, well, I, I went to University of Alabama because Roll Tide. I was like, man, you're gonna have a lot of fun. But in four years, you're going to be like, I don't know exactly what I did. And by the way, some people get lucky at college and they actually mature and they find themselves and all that. That's unfortunately an ever-decreasing minority. College is this extended, almost re, um, it's almost like re, it's putting you back into your childhood years. In fact, I, I deal with high school kids and college kids. Our high school kids are, are way more mature than some of our college kids. They are because their parents are around, they're more disciplined, they're more focused on order. And so let me just say this. When it comes to college, you don't need to go to college to succeed. You don't. I don't care about your piece of paper. I don't care where you went. I care about if you're a good person. I care about if you tell the truth. I care about if you're willing to work hard. And let me just say this, that the pressure that you're going to feel is the same. And I, I didn't go to college, okay? So is the same pressure that I, I'm going to feel. People are going to say you're stupid and that you're dumb. And there's something really wrong with our country if we are measuring value and worth of whether or not you get a piece of paper from some four-year institution. That, 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 that is wrong. But, and so you can see, I'm over time, Troy. You have to forgive me. I'll take a couple more. But instead, we, we look at the actual job openings in our country. We need way less college professors. 
and more entrepreneurs and electricians and carpenters and police officers and people that work with their hands and entrepreneurs and people that know how to do AV and tech, that that's where the opening in our, country's, in our country really is. And so if it's for you, so be it, go do it. But I will say this in closing. Again, I, this is my next book, by the way, is all about this and goes in, into it into rather provocative detail. And by the way, this is like 1% of the sort of information that we've discovered in the process of researching this book is this is for the parents. And I want every parent here to pray about this if you have a high schooler right now. That is the reason you're pushing your child to go to college. Is it somewhere in your psyche a fear that you're going to be in the grocery store or walking the dog and you're going to find a neighbor and the neighbor's going to say, hey, what is Mikey doing? And you're terrified to say, Mikey actually decided not to go to college. Are you afraid of that conversation? If you're afraid of that conversation, then it's more about your ego than your child's future. Pray about that and think about that. So, thank you. We'll take one or two more. Hi, Charlie. My name is Sarah Hewitt. I'm Hamilton's mother. <laughs> We're getting the Federalist paper. <laughs> Uh, we have three other children also, but my question is about the language and the words that have been twisted in our culture today. When I'm talking to a lot of parents and even people of my parents' generation, they don't understand what is being told to our children in school. For instance, equity and equality, lack of uh, uh, marginalized people in society, the white privilege, that you need to release your entitlements. You know, how, so even the word social justice, I think we're all for justice and we're all for social justice, but how the words have really been twisted, how can we understand that context and teach others what, yeah, what's I mean, happening? Language there? is everything, right? And so as soon as language starts to change its meaning, then all of a sudden you change values and you change systems and you change governments. Uh, the Bible is the best example of this, and you know God's chosen, chosen people, the Jewish people in the Hebrew text, they were very clear about what words meant and what they didn't mean. I mean, the significance of words in the biblical text were everything. And so from what you name a child and what you're trying to, you know, what you're trying to actually impart on that child. Let me say this, though, that when it comes to some of these terms, um, a lot of these terms, let me take an example, equity. It sounds nice and it sounds good. Every time you hear that word, I want you to hear, think of this. Forcibly taking from one person and giving to another. That's what equity is. Now, if you're okay with that, then there's, there's an entire volume of literature that I could point you to from you know, Karl Marx to Jean-Jacques Rousseau to whatever. If you think that it's wrong to forcibly take from one person just because of how they look, then you should stand in opposition to that. So this is actually a call to action for a lot of parents. This puts you in a place that might annoy you. It's going to put you in a place that you've never been before. You now have to become masters of academic concepts. That's right. And you're like, well, I don't want to have to do that. Well, that's what it's going to take to raise your child in the 21st century now. You're now going to have to listen to the podcast. You're going to have to go find the thinkers and find the writers. We try to make it very easy to present to all of you. Social justice is another great example, right? The Bible only talks about justice, not racial justice, not environmental justice, not social justice. Now, what is justice? Justice is giving to someone what they deserve. So if you commit a crime, there's something you deserve in retaliation to that. Social justice is then trying to use the levers and the power of the state 
to try and reconfigure society to try to achieve a certain outcome. Now, let me just go to one thing that I think is a broader point that I think will encourage people to think a little bit differently about these issues, um, which is this idea of disparities and discrimination. And this is a very, imp- I'm going to try my best to do this because it's really like a 40-minute lecture. But there's a book written by Thomas Sowell that I encourage all of you guys to check out, called, and he's phenomenal, called Discrimination and Disparities. So there's a great example, actually, let me, uh, this actually might resonate with you guys. A great example is this, is Scottie Pippen recently came out a couple days ago, and I'm a big Chicago Bulls you know, fan, 1990s fan, right? Greatest team ever assembled, Michael Jordan, North Carolina, love it, right? And so... Scottie Pippen comes out of nowhere and he says, Phil Jackson is a racist, right? The coach of the Bulls from the 1990s. He's a racist because he didn't give me the last shot and said he gave it to Tony Kukoc, who's white, even though Tony Kukoc, you know, made the shot. Now, you might say, well, this is a weird example, Charlie. Where are you going with this? Scottie Pippen has been trained by now the people in charge to look at something that might have a million other explanations as being singularly attributable to racism. Does that make sense? So maybe it was the truth is actually Scottie Pippen was used as a decoy, and Tony Kukoc had a hot hand, and he made the shot. Instead, Scottie Pippen, going through this new woke way of viewing the world, is like, no, actually, Phil Jackson was the KKK leader, and he hates black people. Whoa. Another great example, is, so if you look at a data set, and you say, well, the data shows that there's differences in outcomes. How do we attribute that? Well, let's look at another example. In America, coastal cities are wealthier than cities that are inland. River towns are wealthier than mountain towns. Is that because of racism? Of course not. It's because of geography. What I'm trying to get at here is to try to liberate our thinking to say that if there are disparate outcomes, there are other things to blame other than discrimination and racism. For example, whether or not there's a nuclear family intact. For example, whether or not the quality of the school that child is entering into whether or not those teachers are actually teaching things they're supposed to be teaching. What were the crime rates in those neighborhoods? And so if you get into this whole kind of overarching argument where you blame everything based on discrimination, you're actually, in my opinion, indulging in a very sloppy and misleading data analysis where the, out, the, the discrepancy could be attributed to millions of potential prerequisites. So basically what we've done is we've taken a couple of of data sets where we say, well, look, white people are richer than black people in these three categories, therefore racism. Okay, well, then how also do you explain that before the Civil Rights Act, that 22% of black children were born to single mother, now it's 77% of black children. That's a big, that's a big gap. And so I encourage all of you guys to check out Thomas Sowell's book. Also, Vody Bachman is terrific on this. Uh, Bachman, not Bachman, he, he was on my podcast, and I encourage you guys to check that out. I hope that was somewhat helpful, so thank you. Okay, this will be the last one, if not one more, so until I get yanked off here. Hi, my name is uh, Grace Watson, and I am from here, Charlotte. Um, I'm actually here because of Miss Hewitt and the Hewitt family, so thank you. Um, and... My question is, how do I respond as a student to teachers who are trying to teach CRT in the classroom? Yeah, I, this is, you know, do you go to public school, private school? Um, private school. Private Christian. school. Yeah, so um, I would really encourage your parents to kind of get sort of very angry about this. Um, <laughs> I, I don't exaggerate. I don't do that. So let me just tell you something that's going to sound like an exaggeration. Um, they are raising a generation of young people to believe KKK ideology. That's what CRT is. It's that simple. And 
I love the backlash, it should be a hundred times worse. I want you to go read Ibram X. Kendi, who is kind of like the god, the archangel of CRT. He says that we need discrimination today to fix the discrimination of yesterday. Now, you're in a tough spot. And so let me just kind of talk to students in general here. Um, if you dare oppose this, you're going to have to be willing to be called a racist by all of your friends and by your teacher and probably lose all of your friends. Yeah. Right. Do you want to say something? Yeah. Yeah. I actually did deal with the situation exactly like that yeah. um, when we were speaking about white privilege. I, I guess it was about like a book and long story, but yeah, I was called racist and a lot of people in my school especially went against me and so that was very difficult. Um, but luckily I had families and support around me to help stand against that. And um, <laughs> um. And so I, 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 wanna, I wanna build you up and encourage you. Uh, the fact you're thinking this way shows that you're going to lead a very fulfilling and productive life. You are. And there, there, there's really two types of people in the world. Um, and there's a great book that I encourage all of you guys um, to check out, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And he says there's two types of people. There's the decent and the indecent people, right? And he's a guy who survived the concentration camp, just to give you an idea. And so people that are trying to call you those names, those are in the indecent people. And so the best, best advice I can give you is, again, I hate to be like overly fatalistic, it's not going to get easier. Because their playbook is not actually ever to talk about what CRT is. It's to call anyone who disagrees with it a racist. And look, I'm going to sympathize with all of you out there. It's paralyzing to be called a racist. It stops you short. You know why? Because you take words seriously. And that's the worst thing you could be called. In America, that's the thing that ends all conversation. It, it, that's, that's a term that can get billions of dollars from corporations to go to organizations they otherwise wouldn't. That's a word that can get pastors to do goofy things. That's a word that gets people to say, oh my goodness, anything but that. Don't call me that. And unfortunately, they've cheapened it so much that they, it's almost indistinguishable between people that actually harbor that negative racial resentment and don't. But I'm just going to give you a general piece of advice. The harder you fight, the younger you are, the better person you're going to become. And so a good rule for life is to... Stand for truth and with courage, and I think you're going to do very well. And also, you should join Turning Point USA because you will meet amazing young people from all across the country um, that share your values and that are going through the exact same thing you are. And let me also say this. It might not seem this way, but every time you speak out in classroom, there are many other young people that are trembling in fear that are saying, thank you, someone is saying something. And so you represent all of them. Okay, the last question, I promise. <laughs> my name is Cassandra, I'm from Huntersville, North Carolina. And my question is, you know, basically when, I'll be honest, I never heard of you before, until <laughs> you were coming to our okay. church. Um, so I started researching you, and honestly, the first thing that pops up is that you are racist. I mean, you Google you, and that's like the first thing that comes up. 
And you did talk a lot about how to make a change in the schools, but what also comes up a lot is a lot of Turning Point USA groups being kicked out of college campuses. Happens all the time. So you've talked a lot about how we can help in the elementary and the high school, but what is it that we can do to help also get the word into our college campuses for those who do want to go to college and want to be able to stand for what they believe in on the college campus? It's a great question. Thank you. And I just want to say to the earlier point, it's gotten to a place that no matter what the bad guys call me, it just doesn't phase me. You know, I just, and, and I just encourage all of you guys to get to the point that I'm at. It's so liberating. It's so freeing. Don't take these people seriously, please. I mean, it's just delete their social, delete your social media or just turn off notifications. I really don't care what they call me. People are like, oh, Charlie, you're trending on Twitter because everyone says you're the worst person ever. Go, oh, really? I wouldn't know. It feels the same. Like, Twitter's not real life, so. Okay. <laughs> So, and so, again, I, um, I appreciate you saying the first part. And still coming, even though you've read about how awful of a person I am, right? Um, and it's, again, it's death by accusation, right? Like, you're a bad person because this person says that. Um, yes, our, our turning point groups get kicked off campus all the time. Um, the, the, the current college uh, infrastructure is very threatened by young people that tell the truth. And so, therefore, they kick us off. Uh, we're constantly battling with this. But we have a lot of turning point chapters just in North Carolina, and I encourage a lot of you to support them and reach out to them. Um, I think tomorrow we have some students that are coming to some of the services, so I'd love to kind of help you with that. But any young person out there, high school, we have high school chapters and college chapters that you can get involved with at Turning Point USA. And I'll tell you, if any of you guys really want to get some hope for the, fu the future, July 17, 18, 19, 20, we have our big event in Tampa, Florida. We're gonna have 5,000 students from across the country in Tampa, Florida. I think you, got, you guys gotta come, by the way. You're coming? Oh, you're coming, I can't wait to see you. Um, and this will give you renewed hope for the future. It really, really will. And if young people are fighting this hard, then we, I think people of all ages absolutely and totally can. So thank you so much for your question. Come on, wasn't that incredible? Thank Very you, guys. Good. He's going to be here tomorrow. Just stay standing. We're almost done because we're going to have some fireworks. And uh, he's going to be here tomorrow. Different content. We've got three services. Uh, you can At invite campus, some people yeah. that have never heard of Charlie Kirk. Um, he will be preaching, not doing this. We won't have any question and answer. It's a church service. And we'd love you to come and participate. We have one every Sunday here at Freedom House. Um, how and many no Freedom House people do we have live, in the house tonight? We have a lot yeah. of Freedom House people. No matter where you live, we have a campus in Lake Norman. We have a campus in South End. Have hey, a campus and online. We have a campus in the Charlotte Mecklenburg Jail. So some of you, we may have a captive audience watching tonight. <laughs> um, whatever the case is, we just want you to know that we would love for you to come back if you, this is not your home. Tomorrow here at our central campus. Let me say something real quick, too. Yeah. If you don't have a church home, um, it's very important that you get plugged into a church. You need a community around you that will stand with you, that will support you, that will love you, that will challenge you. Um, that will sit with you whenever you're dealing with anything. You need a church family. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to find a good church. Um, we're not perfect. We're not a perfect church. We make a lot of mistakes. Uh, we've been around for 19 years, just so you know who we are. Um, we didn't just pop up overnight. We started in an elementary school, literally 
about two miles away with 30 people uh, 19 years ago. And so we would love for you to come and be a part of our family. We are a family. We, we love connecting with you. We're real people, okay? We're real people. And uh, we have a family. We go through problem, problems, and we tell you about all our problems. <laughs> And so, um, and, and hopefully it, w- it helps you with that. And so we would really love for you to come Absolutely. and participate. If you do, if you're not from around here and you say, um, Troy Penny, could you help me find a church? We would love to do that. We would love to help you find a good Bible believing, truth telling, um, courageous, faith filled family that will help you live the life that God's called you to do. We believe, we believe God has purpose in you. And we believe God has a plan for your life. And Jesus is supreme. And he will help you with everything. And he's not silent. And he wants to talk to you. And so we'll help you with that. Whether you're from Rochester, New York, or Indiana, or wherever, um, we would love for, to help you with that. Um, what else did you want to say? Um, I just want you to know that, that we did add a service on for here tomorrow. So we have a 930, um, an 1115, and a 1 p.m. We will have food trucks here tomorrow, so you can just come, eat lunch, stay, hang out, whatever. Um, But we want to invite you back tomorrow. And don't forget, um, we are getting ready to dismiss, and the fireworks show is going to start in a minute. Ice cream trucks out there. Yeah, the food trucks are still open. Grab your lawn chairs. um, Get your iPhones ready so you can... Show all your friends the fireworks show, but invite somebody Ten minutes. who needs to hear the truth. Invite them to come tomorrow because right. that's how it starts. It starts with those of us who know the truth, not just keeping it to ourselves. All right. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful July 4th. God bless America. We'll see you.